Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is now the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members, like yours truly and Dr. Andrew, are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in both the science and practice of medicine. Today our guest will be Father Nicanor Ostriaco. He's a Dominican with a PhD in biology from Massachusetts Institute of Technology who knows quite a bit about gene editing and the ethics associated with it. But before that, let's look at some recent medical news. Uh, Andrew and I often talk about uh, weight body mass index, obesity, and its relationship to health. Well, there's an interesting study that came out on this subject that was looking at uh, whether or not just being overweight without any of the other risk factors, such as high blood pressure or diabetes, puts you at increased risk for early death. So we already know that obesity is associated with things like cardiovascular health, heart disease, um, diabetes, uh, low back pain, joint pains and problems, and that obesity is still associated with higher risk of death after adjusting for other risk factors, or at least that's what we thought we knew. Well, what this study did was looked at 54,000 men and women from five different studies. And they were categorized as whether or not they had other risk factors like high blood glucose, high blood pressure, high blood lipids or fats, or not. And what they discovered was that if somebody was overweight but didn't have one of these other findings, they lived just as long as people who were not overweight. That's pretty interesting because we always pinpoint obesity and body mass index as a major factor into whether or not a person is healthy. But it appears that if you can find, and I, I'll say clinically, it, they're pretty rare. If you can find someone who is obese with none of these other problems, they're not that worse off. And now, not to think that this was a large proportion of patients. So out of every 10 patients who is obese, which is a body mass index of 30 or higher, only 10% of them did not have uh, a related risk factor. I would say, yeah, it's even just clinically, you don't meet many of them, you know, because we always talk in wellness exams about things to watch for. I usually do screening blood work. And you do meet some folks that, man, all the numbers look good except for the weight. And I, I would say if someone is in that category, it would still be wise, even apart from mortality and morbidity, it'd still be wise to get healthy because even things like joint pain, right? every, every time you go upstairs, just the, the physics of your body weight going around your knee when you bend it, there's about seven times your body weight goes through your knee. So even if you're able to lose 10 pounds in, in trying to achieve a healthy weight, that takes so much pressure off your knees, you're going to lead a healthier life, even if you live the same amount of time. They did show that if you have obesity and just one of those risk factors, high blood pressure, high blood lipids, or high blood sugar, you did have a 15% increased risk of dying versus to somebody your age who is not obese. That's interesting. So it wasn't obesity itself when it was isolated was not a huge risk factor, but when it was added to something else, it really increased the proportions. It does. And I remember this one little fact from medical school that each pound of fat contains like a, a mile of extra blood vessels that wow. the heart has to pump blood through. So that right there is going to contribute to high blood pressure that continues contributes to so many other problems. Wow. It's a lot of pressure on the pump. A lot of pressure. So we now move from this uh, medical uh, news item to uh, kind of a, a sad preventive medical tip from Andrew. That's right. You know, I at the beginning of the show, I kind of wanted to go through all of the recommendations from the USPSTF, 
and I try to pick all the fun and interesting ones first. And now we're getting into the sad but still very important uh, recommendations. And this one is from January of 2013 regarding intimate partner violence. And so the recommendation is that doctors should screen for intimate partner violence, such as domestic violence, and provide referrals and assistance to those who are positive and primarily targeting women of childbearing age because these are the most common victims of this. Which makes sense. It's, there, there are some things that I, I think would be useful for our listeners to know. This is something that affects all ages, ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses. There's not really one demographic that is your, your classic example of intimate partner violence. That's fascinating. You know, you'd, many people think that it's, or I guess there's this perception, maybe it's in the media, that it would be associated with lower income folks. But people of higher income and economic status, they suffer it at about the same rates. And it's also suffered at, at very high rates. You know, women are targeted by this recommendation because it's found that about 24%, one in four women, will be you know, a victim of intimate partner violence at some point in their life. That's incredibly sad. And I was kind of surprised to see also that about 12% of men are. What? Yes. And so this this is, you know, secular data. So this will include men of all lifestyles, different, uh. Uh, different orientations and things of that nature. Um, but 12% of men are also victims of intimate partner violence. And there's really three types of violence. There's psychological violence, sure. threats, coercion, stalking, um, physical violence, which, you know, assault with a poten- potential for harm, and then also sexual violence um, with, you know, forced coercion or lack of consent. And so, Such as rape. Such as rape. And so these are all very sad and scary things. And so one of the things that we try and do as healthcare professionals is if we can discuss this with patients in the setting of the office visit and hopefully identify some victims and help them out. It's something that we see a lot of times patients, and and the large number of these are women, frequently they'll deny it several times before they admit it because for one reason or another, either feeling as, as a victim, you're not able to escape, afraid of the consequences of telling. But it's important, I think, to ask patients about this not only if there's a suspicion, but also as a general rule, because then you're going to be more likely to hopefully identify and help people. How do you approach it with your patients? How do you ask them? You know, I, I try and consider it as a standard thing. I ask people if they've had colonoscopies. I try and identify women at the wellness visits and ask them, how's their family life? Are, do they ever feel in danger? Uh-huh. You know, and it's important to identify because if we can help these folks, you know, you try and get them to develop a safety plan. If if they're in danger at, at the moment, what is their plan to get safety? Hopefully, if you can identify them, also get them some counseling and even sign them up with, with the right people for legal redress to get them protection in the future. Do you ever have uh, women patients or men patients say that they do feel in danger? I, I do. And I, I'm always surprised because it's frequently, if it's not something not something that I would have guessed just passing them in the hallway or in the streets. And so it's something that I'm always happy to discuss with folks because hopefully we can find an outcome that's going to lead to their safety in the future. But it's something that I don't think anybody should should write off or say, well, it wouldn't happen to to this person or or because they're this demographic, they're not at risk. I think especially for clinicians, it's important for us to remember that this could happen to anyone. And so screening, that's the definition of a screening. Sure. We're trying to catch it even though the symptoms are not there. And are, have you already covered all of your three top tips? Well, I, I guess the, the, the final closing thought, that the f- last tip is the one, one of the medical reasons to do this, apart just from trying to help them, is that there's a lot of medical problems associated with intimate partner violence. Many of them are psychological, like PTSD, depression, substance abuse, and eating disorders, but also even pregnancy complications. One thing that I, th- I think we'll have to talk to Chris about sometimes, but if, if you see someone with a lot of different complications to their pregnancy for no good reason, 
that I think would be a symptom that we should pay extra close attention to. Is there are they at risk for this? Are Are there anything you ever pick up on conversation or exam that leads you to suspect there might be some kind of violence like this, even though they're not saying there is? Well, I I think people who you know with without painting too wide of a brush, I always try and ask patients about how they're doing, what have they been up to, how's their family, what are they going to be doing this weekend, you know, and you find some people more or less kind of explaining or making excuses as opposed to, you know, hey, we got to go camping and the kids are so excited about ah. this and da da da. And so it's it's something that's subtle and I think it's difficult to delve into, but it's something that happens with regularity. I know even just this last week, I can think of a handful of patients that this has come up with. So I think it is more common than our listeners might appreciate. Thank you for that very necessary, unfortunately necessary tip. Well, before going to the break, we'll move on into our medical trivia question of the day. Something that comes up a lot among my patients is they will ask, you know, which antibacterial soap they should use. There's a great deal of interest in using antibacterial soaps because they're perceived by people as being uh, much more healthy, especially around the time of doing surgery. So my trivia question is, is simply a true or false question. Are antibacterial soaps more effective than just regular soap and water at preventing infections and removing bacteria from the skin. We'll be back after the break with our interview. At the end of the show, we'll give you the answer to the medical trivia question of the day. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to our main interview today with Father Nicanor Pier Giorgio Ostriaco. Father Nick much easier and shorter to say, is a Dominican <laughs> in Providence, Rhode Island. He got his undergraduate degree at University of Pennsylvania in bioengineering, a PhD in biology from MIT. He was ordained a priest in 2004, has a doctorate in sacred theology from Freiburg, Switzerland in 2005. He's currently a professor of biology and theology at Providence College in Rhode Island, and he currently researches programmed cell death and yeast. So he has an NIH, National Institutes of Health, grant to do that. He's written a book published by Catholic University of America Press called Biomedicine and Beatitude, an Introduction to Catholic Bioethics. And Father Nick is going to talk to us about gene editing. Father Nick, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much, Tom. God bless you, and it, it was wonderful of you to invite me to get on your show. Well, I think our listeners are going to love you. Uh, let's just start out very basically. Why is gene editing such a hot topic right now? It's a hot topic, actually, because of recent advances in technology. So about six years ago, a breakthrough discovery was reported in the journal Science by several scientists who showed that we could actually go in and precisely change the genetic code of DNA. And this opened up the door for scientists today to change the DNA code of any living thing, including human beings, and therefore our children. And so you have a very real possibility now that we have the technology in place that would allow us to edit our kids. That was an incredible introduction that we're going to unpack in the next two segments of the show. So to back up basic biology for our listeners who don't know it like you do, what is Very a cool. gene and what does a gene do? Okay, so think of it this way. The information in the cells of your body can be compared to sentences on a page. And the genetic information is composed of 20,000 genes. And basically, think about each gene being a sentence. So there are like 20,000 sentences in the DNA of your genes, in, in your cells. And, and basically the idea here is that each one of these sentences contains the information for a biological machine that is doing something in your cell. And so we have 20,000 sentences, each one of them making one of the little 
biological machines, and those machines together work to make the body the body that you have. And so the idea now with gene editing is that we can go in and we can take one of these 20,000 sentences in the DNA of your body and change a particular letter. And changing a particular letter would change the biological machine made by that gene in such a way that it would do something different. And so we, we, we in many ways now have the ability to shape how living things are and the kind of things that living things can do. Father Nick, is gene editing a new idea, or does this have a long history of, of hope for therapy? Well, so I think one of the things is that many people don't realize is that we've been trying to edit genes for a long time, for at least half of a century. But what is so groundbreaking with this new technology, which is called CRISPR, is that we now have the ability to go into that encyclopedia of information which is involved which is in every single one of our cells and change a single letter with the kind of precision we were not able to do even 10 years ago and can you give our listeners an example of what some individual genes do that they could relate to so for example the color of your skin is often specified by a gene so individuals who are redhead who have freckles, they actually have a variant of a gene called the melanocortin-1 receptor that changes the ability of that, of the machine that that gene makes so that the color of your skin is different. So, so even just a slight change in what that gene does will change the color of your skin. And so uh, that's one of the things that I, I try to, you know, that I explain to people who are not very familiar with how genes work. And those machines are typically proteins, correct? That's correct. That's right. So they're proteins and, and cells. We are made up of about 45 to 50 trillion cells. And each one of those cells contains thousands and thousands of these proteins, these molecular machines. And those molecular machines are doing things in each one of these cells to keep us alive. And these genes are almost all located in our 46 chromosomes. Is that correct? That's correct. Right, it's correct. So the human being has 46 chromosomes. It's 23 pairs, 23 from mom, and 23 from dad. And so each one of us actually has two copies of every gene, one from mom and one from dad. And the 20,000 of genes that we have, like I said before, is made up of all... is can be compared to sentences, and we can, again, go in there and edit them quite precisely today. So how is CRISPR not something you find in your refrigerator to keep your vegetables fresh, but how is it something that can help change genes in a positive way? How does this, how so, do you use it? Yeah, so let's begin therapeutically. So there are many human diseases that arise because the patient has inherited a defective copy of a gene. So one very common example is sickle cell anemia. Mm -hmm. And sickle cell anemia, sickle cell patients are individuals who have a single change in a gene that is important for making uh, the molecular machine, the biological machine that holds on to oxygen in our red blood cells and what actually happens is that slight change, the single change in one of the letters of the sentence of this gene changes that molecular machine in such a way that the red blood cells of the patients don't behave properly and they change the shape. And so there are actually experiments and process that are ongoing today where scientists and physician scientists are attempting to correct that single letter change in the single gene that causes sickle cell anemia so that corrected cells can be reintroduced into a patient to restore the patient to health. You know, when I, when I met you a few months ago at Vatican City at a, a conference called Unite to Cure, I saw examples in video of patients who literally bring to life the words of Jesus in the gospel or said about him that he made the lame walk and the blind see. 
And some of this was due to gene editing. Could you tell our audience what I'm talking about? So many, so like I said, there are many diseases, many illnesses that are associated with these um, with mutations in genes, and often they affect kids because kids are born with these genetic problems, these genetic defects. And so one of the things we saw together is that genetic editing is able to correct the defects in cells so that when the cells are reintroduced into kids, the kids, in a sense, miraculously come back to life. And one of these conditions was what? Spinal muscular atrophy or the floppy baby? Right. So in in in, in, in some of these cases, what happens is the molecular machine that is defective in a patient is actually important for muscle function. And so when you correct the molecular machine, what happens is you can restore muscle muscle function to a child who is then able, in a sense, to walk and to play in a way that you couldn't have done before. Is, is this something that's readily available for use to any patients who have this disease, or is this still something more in the experimental stage? So right now it's still pretty much in the experimental stage because there are still technological difficulties that scientists are facing. For example, when you want to go in there and correct the single genetic mutation and you want to change, let's say, a letter G into a letter A, the difficulty is that there are so many letters in the cell that you have to figure out how to change this one letter in this one place without affecting any other letter in the encyclopedia that makes up all of the genes of the human patient. And so that's part of the one of the technological difficulties, but that the challenges that scientists are facing today is that they have to figure out how to target the change so the change only happens once. It happens in a precise way without generating any other problems that could make the patient sicker than he already is. What, what are some of the successes that we've had so far? I know Tom has mentioned the spinal muscular atrophy. Are there other ones that are on the near horizon for clinical use? So there are several CRISPR companies in the United States. Three of them are actually an hour north of me in Boston, Massachusetts, in the city of Cambridge, actually. And recently I, have, I was in conversation with individuals from that company, and they are working to take this CRISPR technology to address uh, several diseases. One of them, for example, involves progressive loss of sight in young children because of an inherited genetic defect. So this would be a CRISPR correction of a gene defect that affects the way the patient can see. There's another company that is trying to work to develop the CRISPR system to correct the defect in the livers of young people where the liver is not functioning properly. And so what happens is the kid is sick. And by trying to correct the gen- genetic defect in, li- in the liver, we hope to, re- to be able to recover some normal liver function so that the patient will be well enough to live a normal life. And so from what I understand, the reason why a lot of scientists are picking the eye and the liver is that the eye is easily accessible and the liver regenerates itself relatively quickly and so you're able to go in there and um, change it in such a way that it, you could restore function. How do you get enough copies of the gene in the cells where you want them so that they will cause a difference? Okay, that's a very good question actually. So. For the most part, there are different ways to deliver the gene editing machine. Most popular is to actually use viruses that have been co-opted so that they would become delivery systems for the genetic editing machine. So companies that are trying, for example, to, to correct the genetic defect that's leading to progressive blindness, what they hope to do is that they hope to inject the genetic editing machine using viruses directly into the retina of the eye to correct the genes in the, uh, in the retina. Uh, there are also other ways of delivering 
of, of transporting the genetic editing machine to different cells that don't involve viruses, but these are um, not as developed as the viral approach. But So when you're injecting it into the eye, how do you make sure the virus gets to all or most of the retinal cells? So it turns out that one of the things that's striking about the retina is you don't need to correct most of the retinal cells in order to get sight. So it's, oh. there, there's data that suggests that 20 to, 10 to 20 percent functional uh, photoreceptor cells in the retina is enough for the patient to basically see. And so you don't need 100 percent correction. You only need 10, 15 percent correction. And so the idea here is that even though the patient may not have all of his cells corrected, he will have enough that he will be able to, to see. And I'm not quite sure, because I'm not a doctor, what this means in terms of seeing. Is this, will he have 20-20 vision? I think the idea here is we're just going to give him enough sight so that he will be able to live a normal, ordinary life. He might need to have thick glasses, but he'll, he will not be legally blind. And then the, the patient with the, the floppy baby, how much of the spinal cord do you need to get those cells into? Do you have any idea? I, I No, I, I have not had a conversation with the individuals who were actually directly involved with that particular experiment, so I'm not sure about that. Well, we've come to the end of the first half of this interview, and we'll be right back with more Father Nicanor after the break. Okay, we're back in Dr. Doctor with Father Nicanor Ostriaco talking about gene editing. Father Nick, in my work uh, doing facial cancer surgery and reconstruction, I often get asked if I do plastic surgery. So I make the distinction for my patients that plastic surgery is often looked at as both reconstructive surgery and cosmetic surgery, where reconstructive surgery is taking a defect, a problem, or, or a scar, and trying to make somebody look normal and function normally. Cosmetic surgery would be taking something that's normal and trying to enhance it to something beyond normal. Is there an analogy here between the different ways that gene editing could be used? I think there is. And I've made the argument, and I think others have made the argument, that one of the key distinctions as we consider the future of gene editing is the distinction between therapeutic and non-therapeutic. And I would compare therapeutic to your analogy of reconstructive surgery, where therapy is considered any medical intervention that attempts to either uh, restore or prevent, to, to restore to health or to prevent disease. And, 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 I, and I have made the, the, the argument in many, many places that gene editing for therapeutic purposes is inherently good because our Savior calls us to heal. And the great vocation of a physician is precisely to heal. And there are many different ways of healing. And CRISPR is a way that the Lord has given us, using our reason, to continue the ongoing process of healing, in this case, healing of genetic diseases that we have not yet been able to heal. So, and, so I, and I think that's a very important thing. So there's nothing in mind. inherently wrong with gene editing. The Catholic Church would, would say that there is nothing inherently wrong with it. It's not good or evil. More and, of a tool. Well, I think, you know, it, it's really interesting. I, when I was having a conversation with a, with a student who works in a laboratory who was worried that his research would be problematic because he's developing a new technology. And I said, you know, what's really striking is that for the most part, technology, things that we make, for the most part, not everything, but for the most part, technology can be used for good and for evil. You know, I can use a pencil to write and I can use an, a pencil to stab someone in the eye. And uh, in the same way, gene editing, as long as it's safe, as long as it's reliable, can be used for good ends, to achieve good ends, and I and the primary good end here is therapy, healing, and also the prevention of disease. And it can be used for ends that are not perfective and ends that are, in fact, promote, promote a particular attitude towards other people that may, that may not be perfective of the human person. So this is where we're talking about eugenics and the concern here. So eugenics is this mentality that we have to 
get rid of individuals who are in some way fall short of the perfection of the human species and that our goal should be to perfect the human species. And the danger there is what constitutes perfection of the human species depends upon the particular individual. And and that would be problematic. Before we continue on the vein with humans, I want to take a step back. Since gene editing Mm -hmm. can be moral or immoral, is it sometimes moral to do it with crops? Because there are a lot of people who think that genetically modified foods are immoral. What would the church say about that? Yeah, so one of the things I I keep telling people is that you and I are genetically modified organisms (laughs) because we have viruses that have infected us over the course of our lifetime. So every time you get a virus, some of these viruses... Uh, take their DNA and they put their DNA, DNA into our DNA. So we're carrying, we're genetically modified organisms. And so genetically modifying an organism is not inherently problematic. Again, the idea here is, is that natural things are good and genetically modified organisms are not good. I go, well, you know, my mom's great and she's genetically modified. <laughs> so, um, so it's really important to see that, number one. Number two, we have been breeding crops for millennia. Yes. And every time we breed crops, we are actually modifying their genes because we're trying to grow crops that are beneficial for us. So one of the things, for example, is we had strawberries for dessert a couple of days ago. And the strawberries that you can buy in a supermarket in the United States are ha- do not look like any kind of wild strawberry you would be able to find anywhere else because we have genetically bred them to be large, plump, red, and tasteless. And, and the thing is that these, they're not genetically modified in the sense that, that what the people imagine. So it's not like we went in there and tinkered with their genes using bioengineering. But what we did is that we selectively bred different kinds of strawberries and selected for the strawberry that we wanted. And so we, so if you compare the strawberries of today and the strawberries of 200 years ago, the genes are very different. And what genetic, genetically modified organisms is just an attempt to accelerate the, the process of, of choosing genes that are good for a particular uh, a particular fruit, for example, or rice. So we, there's golden rice. So this is, I believe it's rice that has been genetically altered so that the rice is now able to produce vitamin, I think it's vitamin D. I have to look that I up. Think it's it's one of the vitamins. Maybe. Okay, I'm, it's, it's, my, it's, it's escaping me right now. But, but what happens is that this is a rice that is able to produce a vitamin that is lacking the diets of many, many millions of children in the developing world. And this rice is now able to act like a vitamin supplement. So you don't have to go to a Walgreens or a CVS. You just eat your rice and you get the, the, the vitamin supplement associated with uh, that you need in order to keep healthy. And so we've been able to do that because we genetically altered uh, the genes of that, of that rice. And, I, and, and I'm going to argue that's actually a good thing because you gave the rice a property it didn't have before. Right. But now, and it's vitamin A. I actually just Googled it. So, um, so golden rice has vitamin A. And rice prior to that didn't have vitamin A. And we can now, you know, make, keep kids healthy with this rice that's now able to make vitamin A. So it's, it is genetically modified because rice normally doesn't have the ability to make vitamin A. But I think it's a legitimate use of the scientific capacity and traits that God has given us in order to provide for the well-being of millions of, of young people who, who don't get the proper vitamin A supplementation. So if we go up a step in the scale of being from plants to animals, <laughs> could we use gene editing in Fido or Fluffy or Mittens to make it uh, a more delightful animal? Would that be considered yeah. moral or immoral, Father? So, so, so it's really interesting. So 
over the last year, I think we've, we now have genetically engineered beagles that have a mutation in a gene that makes them more muscular. <laughs> and the idea here is that you want dogs for police work oh. and people like beagles. And so you make them more robust. <laughs> we also have, we've genetically made um, mini piglets, pigs. They're, the, the pigs are about as big as, I don't know, a football. <laughs> and the idea here is that the I guess skin, there are yeah. people who wanted pigs as their pets. And you can't really have a thirty, you know, a one hundred pound. <laughs> They're not for making footballs. House. No, <laughs> no, no. And then there are also genetically modified cattle that are now resistant to tuberculosis. And so the, the, these examples are just different ways to highlight how genetic engineer engineering has been used. Some would say for genuinely good reasons, like the the the. the tuberculosis-resistant cattle. Some would say it's, you know, somewhat superficial and um, flimsy reasons, like making, you know, the mini piglet, mini piglet pets. But we have glowfish, for example. So you can just go into, into a pet store today and you can get glowfish. And these are fish that are genetically engineered to express, that means to produce a glowing, colored, biological machine that is usually found in jellyfish <laughs> and now these fish glow in the night and i know my students love them love love them they're called glowfish you can buy them online you can go to walmart to buy them would this so, be, so yeah. would this be mm -hmm. considered immoral by the catholic church what what we're doing in animals the glowfish immoral i mean well i mean again we're not harming the fish right right you're not harming the fish there's nothing wrong with having pets so the idea here is that, you know, in the past we have been breeding, say, Siamese fighting fish so that they're big and colorful. Now we're just making them colorful in the way they couldn't have been colorful before because now they're glow in the dark. No. So I, I, think that, I, I think that within reason, within reason, we can genetically alter non-human living organisms as long as there's an authentic good that we are trying to achieve, now, Father, and you bring that we up... do it in a way that doesn't that doesn't uh, give rise that doesn't um, torture them in any way. You you make the key distinction there, non-human. What mm -hmm. what major considerations do we have to think of when moving from all of these other examples into human beings? Well, the fundamental difference is that the human being has dignity, and what I mean, and, and you know, and and uh, the great German philosopher Kant once pointed out that things have a price, humans have dignity. <laughs> and when I teach this in class, I always ask my students, how much are you worth? And they're never sure. And then I say, how much does your mother think you're worth? <laughs> and they say, I'm priceless. And that's exactly what it is. So there is a, a claim within the Christian tradition, and I think there are other religious traditions that would hold to the same that the human being is set apart because the human being has a value that far exceeds a glowfish or a piglet or a beagle, precisely because the human being is a person. And so one of the great moral principles in the Western tradition is that persons have to be treated differently from non-persons and be, in order to respect the dignity that they have. And so this is, where, this is where we would have to draw the line. So, Father, it makes me wonder, for our listeners, if, if we should be embracing this with open arms or if we should be very wary. You, you had mentioned the, the glowfish and the small piglets. I'm, I'm wondering if this technology is going to be used for the, the high cost of treating a few people with rare diseases that we can cure, or if it would be more likely used to help little Jimmy run faster when he's playing soccer. You know, is this something that as a, as a Catholic in America, should we be encouraging this and be hopeful or should we be very wary? Well, I think we have to be prudent. I think all technology is such that it can be used for good or for evil. And right now we need to promote this technology for the curing of 
patients, especially young patients, who have no other hope but in this kind of gene editing technology that is now available to them. And so just like with any technology, we have to be, you know, we, there, there's, a prudent, there's a level of prudence. In other words, we, we have to do it step by step. We have to make sure that it's safe. Then we have to have a social conversation, a, a society-wide conversation about what it means to be a human being and the kind of actions that would have to be uh, considered to re- in respect of the human person. So, I mean, this is a conversation that hopefully we'll be having, and I'm hoping that the Catholic Church will be a catalyst in this conversation. And I think the meeting that uh, Tom and I attended several months ago in the Vatican was one sign of that. That was one attempt for the Catholic Church to reach out and to inject into the scientific conversation an ethical and philosophical consideration of the moral boundaries that should be in place. And you did a fantastic job of that on your two panels where I heard you there with these other world-class scientists. But to clarify for our listeners, the concept of designer babies, what is meant Mm -hmm. by that in terms of gene editing, and what would we as Catholics say about that with our understanding of human dignity? So I think when we think of design, we think of an artist, and we think about a human being who creates something in his own image and likeness, something that he wants. And and the the concern that CRISPR and any gene technology raises is that parents now have the means by which that they could design their kids in the same way they design their car. So that they would go into a into a clinic and then the clinic would say, look, uh, do you want a tall kid? Do you want a blue-haired kid? Do you want a blonde kid? Do you want a kid with large muscles? And then what you would do is you would customize your kid, and the genetic engineers would then go in there and genetically alter the genes that needed to be altered in order to give you the kid that you wanted. And the danger there is we have now reduced the child to a product who is made rather than begotten. And so, and one of the things the Catholic Church is, and I would say most of the major religions want to point out is that that human beings can never be treated as products or are manufactured or um, made in a way other than nature intended. And that would be the concern. That makes me think of some of the in vitro fertilization type clinics where if you're picking a, a donor cell, a donor sperm or a donor egg, they give you statistics on the person that donated that cell. And then it's kind of a mix and match to try and make this quote-unquote ideal child. But it it seems as though that it would be a very dangerous road to go down society-wise. We know it's wrong as Catholics and Christians. How, how can we best make that case to our secular neighbors? Now that's going to be a challenge because our secular neighbors are confused because they have they, they have forgotten that they are more special than they think they are. Uh-huh. And so and because they have forgotten their dignity. And and so it's going to be incredibly difficult in a world that focus focuses primarily on the fulfillment of the individual subjective desire. The idea that any that good things are those things that allow the individual to satis- to become happy in whatever way he wants to be happy, as long as it doesn't hurt someone else, and um, it's going to be very hard because we you know we are now in the we live in a culture where people go in and they want to pick out their pets and they go looking for a particular breeder who's able to give them a pet. Of a with particular traits. And so that mentality is going to be transferred to their children. And you're going to have parents saying, look, I'm going to spend so much money making sure my kid gets into the best kindergarten so that he gets into the best high school so he can get into the Ivy League and get a job on Wall Street. Why not give me the freedom to make sure that this kid has advantage even before he's conceived? And so that this kid is going to be tall, he's going to be beautiful, and he's going to have everything that makes 
that he needs to become an A plus success. And it, and 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 you're going to have parents who are duking it out over the single, you know, opening in a kindergarten or a preschool in Manhattan, who have all of this money, who are now going to take that drive and apply it to designing their kids. It's going to be really tough for us to say, no, you can't do that. Where would you start? Remind them of how amazing and worth and worthwhile they are. Tell them that they are worth more than the entire universe. Yes. I love it's very that. hard. It's very hard. Uh, and that they, that they are, you know, I, I tell my students, I said, you will live forever and you will be there when the universe goes dark and because we have an eternal destiny all of our things we do today should be done in light of that supernatural horizon and we forget that you know i I think people believe that they're only here for 70 years or 80 for those who are strong (laughs) and and i keep telling them no you're you're going to be here forever and you're and and that allows you to see the world to see disappointment, to see suffering, to see success, to see celebrity in a different way. We're winding but that's up about Jesus Christ. Is there anything else you want to leave with our listeners on this subject? Um, have kids. <laughs> have, have kids the way that people have been doing for thousands of years. <laughs> and then remember always that they are gifts that will outlive you in one sense, that will, that will enrich your life in a way you cannot imagine. And could we have your blessing for our radio audience? The Lord be with you. With, with your, your spirit. spirit. And, may Almighty, and may Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Thanks Thank be you, to Father. God. Thank, Thank you for coming on you the You were tremendous. We will be asking you back. God bless. Thank you. God bless. Bye. Bye-bye, Father. Welcome back after that stirring interview with Father Nick. We've got to have him back. He is a wealth of information. I was so impressed by how he explained things at a level that I wish I had had when I was a student. That's the order of preachers, right? He's taken really complicated stuff and making it so even I can understand it. E- yes. So, yes. So simple, even a doctor can understand him. And I have to say, when we were at the conference together uh, in Vatican City, there was one afternoon when he was gone. And I found out where he was. He was with the Pontifical Academy for Life. And they were meeting with these high-speed owners, CEOs of these gene editing companies Wow! and the head of the National Institutes of Health from the U.S. and talking about the Catholic Church's understanding of what we can and can't do. And he has such an inviting way about him. They were stunned when he clearly said, you know, we can't do designer babies. Here's why. And they came out of that meeting both surprised but getting a glimmer of understanding of why the church consistently teaches what it does. So it was a beautiful thing to see. And he is an an ideal person to do it because at this conference, all these high-tech researchers, many of whom don't have much of a religious faith, although they would consider themselves spiritual, trust him and go to him with all kinds of deep ideas. So talk about a, a fertile place for evangelization, a great person to do it. Well, they they say you catch more with honey than with vinegar, and there's something about him that's just so engaging that he makes the truth very palatable to people who might not be familiar with it. And inviting, yes. And the trivia question that I asked at the beginning of the show is this, and maybe you have an answer. True or false? Antibacterial soaps are more effective than regular soap and water at preventing infections and removing bacteria. I always love the binary decisions. We get a test like this in med school. I say, hey, I'm, I'm halfway there. <laughs> That's right. You only have a 50% chance of being wrong. <laughs> well, the, there was a great article put out by the Food and Drug, Medical, uh, the Food and, uh, the Food and Drug Association, FDA, called antibacterial soap, question mark. You can skip it. Use plain soap and water. So the statement is false. Antibacterial soaps are no better 
than regular soap and water at preventing infections and the moving bacteria. That's pretty impressive, and you've got to kind of question why we even have this stuff. And I, I've seen a big push lately to try and get rid of some of this because they think it's leading to antibiotic resistance. Well, it is, because oftentimes these, as well as topical antibiotics that you can buy over the counter, may kill less than half of bacteria. And the ones they kill are usually the healthful ones on our skin, making more of a space for the harmful ones to start growing. Man, that's scary. It is. And in fact, the, the FDA gave three years for the makers of antibacterial soaps to show the data that said that both the antibacterial ingredients in soaps were safe and effective at preventing infection. And guess what? They didn't get any information. They said, since we have no evidence of its safety or effectiveness, we're pulling these from the market. Now, it doesn't affect the alcohol-based hand sanitizers. Because mm -hmm. that's a different mechanism. It's not truly, it's bactericidal because it, it kills the whole bacteria. It's not, a, I guess, would you say, a biochemical reaction? Well, it's not a, a targeted it's not antibiotic. A therapeutic drug. No, no, it's not. Uh, so they took off the two main ingredients for triclosan and triclocarban. And they're no longer in soaps. Just use plain soap and water. You don't need anything special. And we're not worse off for it. We aren't. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information on the CMA, find us on our website, cathmed.org, C-A-T-H-M-E-D.org. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. Signing off until next time. Remember... Your medical decisions may have profound consequences, so please choose wisely and choose Catholic. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor and in the Redeemer Radio app.